this place. Right in the heart of town. We can never have any fun without a hundred people calling to complain. Hey there, and welcome to Marvel by the Month. I'm here with Rob Milne. I'm here with Brian Stratton. Ah, there you go. A little curveball. Just, you know, changing things up a little bit. Trying to keep the relationship fresh. It scares me. <laughs> so uh, this is our season three recap for Marvel by the Month. Um, we do one of these things uh, at the end of each of our seasons so that uh, if you are a new listener to the podcast, uh, you can catch up really quickly and not have to listen to dozens of episodes um some of which have wildly varying audio quality <laughs> oh yes technology is not our friend no i mean it it slowly has become not our enemy but you know. true um but this time um we're trying something a little different um we're also going to give some additional information about what was going on with marvel's creators uh and sort of the broader comics world uh because this is a really exciting and tumultuous time for the industry um, and, uh, before we get started, uh, I want to, uh, shout out, uh, four books in particular that really helped me, uh, understand what was going on behind the scenes, um, and put a lot of information together, um, that you're going to hear in this episode. So these four books in no particular order are Slugfest Inside the Epic 50-Year Battle Between Marvel and DC by Reed Tucker, Fire and Water, Bill Everett, The Submariner, and The Birth of Marvel Comics by Blake Bell, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe, and Kirby, King of Comics by Mark Evanier. Um, these are four highly recommended books. I highly recommend them. Um, I highly, I've read two of the four. So I'm, a, of course, half as scholarly as Brian. But uh, <laughs> yes, uh, I could highly recommend. Uh, I'm right now just rereading Kirby King of Comics. I've gone through it and then started back in because there's so many giant pages of art in there. Oh, I know. I just got uh, another uh, Kirby book that Evanier did. Um, it's the uh, the art of the Simon and Kirby studio. And it's basically a giant art book. It's There's very little prose in it, um, but he just did a really beautiful job of um, of sort of curating a ton of stuff that they did in the forties together. Um, nice. Yeah. So looking forward to cracking that too. Um, but yeah, uh, so this, uh, recap episode, uh, for season three, um, we started the season, um, with the comics that hit the stands in April, 1965. The last episode, um, uh, featured the comics that landed on the newsstands in February of 1966. So we're subtitling season three, The World's Greatest Comic Magazines. There's no question that Marvel really was on top at this point, uh, creatively, if not sales-wise, although that would happen sooner or later. So Marvel and DC, which we think of as the big two now, they were the big two then as well. They weren't the only comics publishers in the industry, but they absolutely dominated the newsstands. And at this point, uh, the two companies were moving in completely opposite directions. So DC sales had peaked in 1963, and they were on the decline. They were selling about 100 million issues a year, which is a phenomenally high number, you know, compared to what, well, what DC is selling these days. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, they were selling them to newsstands, and and it was a returnable market. So like, if if a news vendor didn't sell everything on the stands, they could return. Used to be, you'd have to tear off the covers. Um, and return those and you could get full credit for the issue. Then it switched to where it's like, basically you just had to sign an affidavit saying it's like, Nope, didn't sell these. <laughs> um, 
which obviously was, you know, a system rife for abuse. Um, but so they were selling 100 million issues a year, but as many as 60% of them were being returned. So they were really only selling 40 million a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but Marvel sales were really catching fire. Uh, they continued going up year after year. Some of Marvel's titles were selling through 85% of their print runs, which is almost unheard of at the time. Kids saw Marvel Comics on the stands. They bought them. Um, yeah. And the sell-through was ridiculous. And more and more were getting to the stands. Uh, over this period, uh, That even this eight months that we've been covering um, in this season, uh, they were able to slightly increase their output, but they were yeah. still capped at how many they could. Because I think their distributor was still basically dc right uh yeah so d you know they they could only put out so much but they were starting to get such huge interest that that's about to change yeah 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 i mean so dc had they'd done a deal marvel had a distributor that went out of business um martin goodman was put in a position where he had to rely on dc's uh independent news as their distributor and that so if you look at an early marvel comic book you'll see like on the cover there'll be little ind that's what that stands for, independent news. Uh, that's the distributor. So initially, uh, independent news would only allow Marvel to publish eight titles a month, but the sales were so good that they upped that to 10 to 14 titles a month. And that's why by the end of 1965, a lot of Marvel's books, which were bi-monthly, had switched to a monthly publishing schedule. It's because they were just doing so well that basically DC, even though they were the competitor, they owned the distributor and they couldn't afford not to let Marvel sell more comics. So <laughs> it's this weird catch 22. And Marvel was, I mean, and a lot of these titles start as the leads in like an otherwise mystery or crime suspense, you know, book. So tales right. of suspense, literally, you know, Iron Man gets put as the lead in it. And then it later gets cap in there as well and becomes its own book of just superheroes that's why these weird names these weird legacy names of journey into mystery which is the first thing i think of when somebody says thor and it makes no sense at all because it right. just happened to be where thor was placed as it started yeah yeah so marvel's going gangbusters at this point and what's kind of crazy is that dc's higher-ups were in complete denial about the state of their business they had this assumption like we are outselling marvel and they were by like three to one you know, total volume of, of titles that were going out, but they weren't selling through. And meanwhile, like it was really clear that like Marvel was starting to get attention from mainstream media and things like that. Uh, and this is an anecdote that I just love. Uh, so Arnold Drake, uh, who was the DC writer who had created the doom patrol, um, which is a very Marvel like. Yeah. Dysfunctional comic. group of misfits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That uh, are it, powered. Yeah. Right. And and like later in later years, he would accuse Stan of ripping him off to make the X-Men. But like if you look at the Doom Patrol, it's really obvious that's like a slight remix of the Fantastic Four. So, mm-hmm. you know, like pot in the kettle. Um, so he's watching what Marvel's doing. He's trying to bring that energy to DC. He tries to convince DC's publisher, Erwin Donenfeld, to take Marvel ser- uh, seriously as a competitor. And Donenfeld's response to Drake was, you're as foolish as a Christmas turkey. We outsell Marvel three to one. And that raises two questions. First, how could anyone in an industry where imitation was almost always the key to success just miff this one so badly? And two, where was Donenfeld getting his Christmas turkeys? Uh, <laughs> shits farms. Um, so, so DC... 
started to make a few half-hearted attempts uh, to create a shared universe between all of their characters uh, because really they were fairly disparate. Um, they just lived in each of their own little fictional cities and did whatever. Um, but it was something that was being imposed after the fact and it just wound up being a giant game of whack-a-mole. So they had no continuity, which is um, which is why DC has rebooted their entire universe every five to seven years since 1986. And I gave up trying to follow it 20 years ago. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, I, I read Crisis when it came out. I think I stuck with Zero Hour, but there's been like three or four reboots since then. Yeah, I think Crisis was Crisis when uh, Hal Jordan blows up a lot of stuff. That um, was Zero Hour. I Zero think. Hour was Coast City gets demolished by him. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I can't remember now. And that's the other thing is that I can't remember. Like, I can remember Secret Wars, and that was kind of just to sell some action figures and have a big crossover. But, right. uh, but I still, <laughs> or it was just, you know, Spider Man gets a new costume. But uh, it's still cohesive and coherent right right um and dc had also tried to copy some superficial elements of marvel's presentation um so they had their own version of marvel's bullpen bulletins which they called direct currents um and they branded their covers for a little while with this checkerboard pattern at the top uh to help them stand out like marvel did with their corner box treatment but uh, there's a uh, former DC editor, Brian Augustin, said DC started to try to ape some of Marvel's trappings, the superficial elements that they could grab. But at this point, it was 45 year old men trying to understand what college students wanted. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, that stings a little bit. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but it's true. But it's true. Um, yeah. And the two things that DC didn't have and could not replicate were Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Uh, and that would be the case for many more years because DC and Marvel had a gentleman's agreement, which was basically collusion. <laughs> Marvel wouldn't compete for artists by raising their rates to be competitive with what DC was paying. And DC wouldn't try to hire Jack Kirby away from them specifically. Yeah. Um, DC artists who did Moonlight for Marvel did so under pen names and they weren't getting paid what they were making at DC. So they were just getting some extra cash by doing that gig. And and some of these were, I mean, they were they were well-established DC artists who were working on some pretty significant titles. Flash artist Frank Giacoya uh, worked as Frankie Ray. Uh, Wonder Woman artist Mike Esposito was Mickey DeMeo when he worked for Marvel. Jack Abel, the artist of Superman, uh, was Gary Michaels. <laughs> Even Gil Kane, uh, the co-creator of Green Lantern, uh, did an issue for Marvel as Scott Edward. And then Gene Colan, who DC had just stuck on romance titles. He came over to Marvel and was working on Tales to Astonish, uh, doing Submariner stories as Adam Austin. So, you know, Marvel couldn't pay uh, what DC could pay. And they didn't have the volume of work to do because DC was, you know, still keeping Marvel's uh, book count down. But there were folks who wanted to work for Marvel despite that. Um, you know, I mean, some of it was the fact that they could get an extra paycheck. But, you know, there was also just like a lot of enthusiasm about what was going on and, and what you could do at Marvel and the sort of the, the energy and the freedom that you had uh, as an artist. It was an exciting time to be working for comics, especially if you were working for Marvel Comics. 
And uh, let's go ahead and take our first break. And when we come back, we will uh, get started uh, talking about some of the most exciting stuff that was going on. So uh, stay tuned right here on Marvel by the Month. Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. I think some of the best stuff uh, that was going on uh, in our last season that Marvel was publishing was uh, Fantastic Four. That's really uh, the other reason that I wanted to subtitle this season The World's Greatest Comic Magazines. FF had been using uh, in the singular uh, as its tagline starting with issue number four. Um, It started out as just like a really brash claim and then quickly wound up being absolutely true. (laughs) that's it's so bizarre stan's you know bravado uh he's also got a lot of humility in it but he's always overselling everything oh yeah and then to have it actually be fulfilled is (laughs) so cool and fantastic four i love that it was also issue number four since it's fantastic four um but it was really where most of marvel's most exciting stuff was taking place so you know, it started with FF and Daredevil teaming up to take on Dr. Doom and at least this season. Um, then Ben Grimm was brainwashed by the frightful four and turned against his teammates. Sue and Reed got married and Reed instantly turned into the world's worst husband. Uh, <laughs> then the Inhumans showed up, which is just this whole other pantheon of heroes. Um, and the season ended with the coming of Galactus and the first appearance of the Silver Surfer. So, huge what a run and it was so great to to go back and reread these things and then especially to to revisit the the galactus and surfer story we had three incredible guests uh to talk about those uh issues with um we had tom scioli writer artist of fantastic four grand design uh he's got an upcoming kirby graphic biography jack kirby the epic life of the king of comics he was one of our guests. Uh, we also had Sean Baby of Cracked.com and 1-900-Hot-Dog fame. Um, and, you know, basically like a quarter century of making the internet a more hilarious place. <laughs> um, and then we had uh, Clint McElroy, uh, the co-host of the Adventure Zone and co-writer of the Adventure Zone graphic novels and War of the Realms Journey into Mystery. All three of those guys were just a blast to talk about these issues with. Um and I know this is a recap, but seriously, go back and listen to those episodes. We're very proud of them. <laughs> Just go back a few. We're not yeah. saying you have to start at the beginning. And then Jack Jack Kirby deserves more credit than he gets outside of hardcore comics fandom for Marvel's early success, particularly the success of Fantastic Four. He should have statues of him, seriously. Uh, at least in the Marvel headquarters, there should just be a giant bronze Jack Kirby, you know, maybe with surf, on a surfboard. I don't know. Um <laughs> I'm just spitballing. So uh, Kirby produced a ton of work for Marvel during the 60s. From 1962 to 1964, he worked on 3,130 interior pages and 285 covers. Wow. Uh, And he was not being compensated anywhere close to fairly uh, for the value that he was providing to the company. No, not at all. I mean, this company was experiencing explosive growth at this point. Uh, their circulation had tripled to 35 million a year uh, from before uh, when they were, you know, before they were doing superhero stuff. 
they had sold 40,000 memberships to the Mary Marvel Marching Society fan <laughs> club. Uh, each one of those envelopes had a, a dollar bill in it also. So in 1965, that was starting to add up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, according to Stan, who, you know, not always the most reliable narrator, the office was receiving about 500 fan letters a day. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of energy and enthusiasm and and sales, uh, but the page rates were not keeping pace with the company's profits. Artists were not getting a bigger chunk of the pie. There was no royalty structure. There was no nothing. Yeah, I think Kirby only made a little bit more because he could actually output like six times the pages that most artists could. Yeah. Uh, so he because he you know still getting paid a pittance for each one, and he was still great and faster. Holy crap he should be paid more you know oh absolutely but i mean the big problem with jack kirby's time at marvel was that like almost nothing about his deal was written down this wound up creating some big problems for him and this isn't the first time you'd think that this would have been a fool me once shame on you situation um but when he and joe simon created captain america for what was then called timely comics in 1941 um, Martin Goodman, the publisher, promised them 25% of the profits on comics featuring Cap and any other characters they created in Captain America. Uh, you will not be shocked to hear that they never saw a dime of that profit sharing. Yeah, and which was also part of why Kirby really begrudgingly went back to Marvel. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as things were drying up at DC for him. Yep. Um, Kirby was stuck working for Marvel because because of those burned bridges uh, with DC, uh, basically over a syndicated comic strip deal that went south. And it was another sort of verbal agreement. Yep. <laughs> uh, a legal settlement had gone against him that he needed to produce an astounding amount of work to pay off. So he was paying off a legal <laughs> settlement. He was also starting to have trouble with one of his eyes, which he didn't let anyone know about, which, you know, he he is drawing these very insanely uh, detailed things every day by the boatload and his primary concerns were long-term financial security and health insurance which was always his goal uh, which the powers that be at marvel made vague promises about but still hadn't actually offered him yeah boggling i know i know they kirby's famous quote is that comics will break your heart um Mm. and the more you learn about his experiences specifically with Marvel, although, you know, he was hard done by at DC as well over the years, the more you understand where that came from. And what's crazy is that, you know, he's he's being taken for granted. He's basically being exploited um, to do all this great work. And he's doing some of his absolute best work. During this last season of episodes that we were talking about, he created the Inhumans, Galactus and the Silver Surfer in less than a year. And there's no dispute that he is the 100% creator of Silver Surfer. The first time Stan Lee even had the thought uh, of the Silver Surfer was the first was when he saw him penciled onto the pages that Jack delivered. That was not part of Stan's original uh, plot for the, the story at all. Like, he, he had the idea about Galactus coming to Earth, but Jack delivers these pages and Stan's like, who's the guy on the surfboard? And Kirby says... Well, that's the guy who finds the planets for Galactus. Yeah, so. <laughs> I love. I, I'd love to think that that's that is also this is the biggest and 
or not maybe the biggest, but it's one of the things that really illustrates their communication and and how much Jack plotted too, where or created a character just out of whim and then definitely tried to talk Stan into keeping those characters and not rewriting it and making him go back and draw a whole bunch of right, pages, right. which happened all the time as well. Which was a thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Kirby was promised a share of the merchandising that Marvel was starting to license out. Surprise, surprise, that never materialized either. So, you know, unfortunately, like, although things are great right now and we're getting all these amazing Kirby creations, in the not-too-distant future, you're going to see that Kirby kind of stops creating new A-list characters. And it's not that he ran out of ideas. Jack Kirby never suffered from a lack of ideas. <laughs> but as his uh, his wife, Roz, uh, was quoted in, in an interview at one point, no more Silver Surfers until he gets a better deal. <laughs> so there you go. And it was around this time that Stan and Jack's relationship started to fray as well. So as we were talking about, the their communication was breaking down. A reporter from the New York Herald Tribune came to Mar- the Marvel offices to do a story on the comics company uh, that was starting to generate this mainstream attention. And although several members of the Marvel bullpen were interviewed, it probably won't shock you to hear that Stan was extremely charming and quotable. Um, so the article came out and it was so biased toward giving Stan credit for everything that Roz Kirby called him directly and woke him up shouting, how could you do this? How could you have done this to Jack? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Stan, to his credit, said she had every right to be upset. About four-fifths of the article was about me and made me out to be the most glamorous, wonderful human being that ever lived. And the very last few paragraphs were about Jack and made him sound like a jerk. So, you know, Stan was like, no, that's that's unacceptable. And from that point on, uh, the credits on Thor and Fantastic Four were changed so that they always read a Stanley and Jack Kirby production. So the Kirby Marvel books would no longer say written by Stanley, and that helped to smooth some things over somewhat. Um, but the damage had been done, and it wasn't something that Kirby would ever forget. Um, he held on to this for a very long time, and a lot of it was due to creative tensions uh, with what was becoming known as the Marvel method of creating comics. The and the way it was supposed to work was that the writer, almost always Stan, would discuss the plot with the artist. The artist would pencil the issue and send it back to the writer for dialogue. Uh, after the word balloons were added, the story would be inked. So it's, you know, and we we saw this. We even reviewed the the at least part of the script of the original FF number one. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Which which is pretty detailed and. Uh, and you can see where flourishes were added as Kirby right. took that. Yeah, but it was it was a radically different style of creating comics. Um, traditional comics writing would have the writer deliver a full page-by-page script to the artist that had final dialogue and everything in it. Um, but the reason that Marvel worked the way that Marvel did was because Stan was the, the writer, like he was basically writing everything. There's no way he could possibly have done a dozen or more full scripts every single month. It just would not have happened. And Marvel was in such financially precarious shape before things really started taking off with Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and all those characters that Martin Goodman was like, no, you're the writer. Like, figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> so. And he did bring his his brother. Uh, yeah. Uh, Larry Lieber to help write some things and and even draw some things in some of the comics. Um, 
but yeah, he was, he was basically the sole writer. So there's no way you can write out like a storyboard with dialogue for every panel. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just not going to happen in that time frame. Yeah. And the dirty secret of course, is that, you know, even with the way that the Marvel method was supposed to work, that Kirby and a lot of the other experienced artists would often be the ones who came up with the plots. Like maybe Stan would give them a sentence or two. Um, or sometimes they wouldn't even discuss them with Stan at all. Like uh, Ditko's Spider-Man stuff and, and Doctor Strange stuff uh, was absolutely created completely independently of Stan, especially <laughs> toward the end. Yeah. Um, so what would sometimes happen is that Stan would go off in a completely different direction as he, so he gets the first batch of the pages. He's dialoguing everything and, you know, trying to basically see where this is going and then he'd decide he wanted to go in a completely different direction than Kirby or whoever intended in the first half of the story, which is frustrating in and of itself. But Kirby's still penciling the second half as Stan's doing this, unbeknownst to him. So Stan's scripted pages would come back, and then Kirby would have to redraw aspects of the second half of the story to make them match what Stan had written into the first half. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Kirby wouldn't get paid for the rewrite. Yeah, it's so, insane. It's yeah. like, uh, and Kirby didn't have the option of leaving because he had nowhere else he could go. Um, and his family was so dependent on that Marvel paycheck. Uh, but this this sort of thing is one of the reasons why Steve Ditko and Wally Wood wound up leaving Marvel in the mid-60s. And more on that after this next break. Stay tuned to Marvel by the Month. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Let's get into uh, Spider-Man and Steve Ditko. Uh, although we focused heavily on the Fantastic Four this last season, The Amazing Spider-Man was also one of Marvel's strongest and uh, most popular titles. The, the, this season of the podcast started with J. Jonah Jameson making a full heel turn and buying a killer <laughs> robot to chase down Spider-Man and kill him. It almost works. Yeah, it came. He comes very close to just murdering Spider-Man. Yeah, it is. It's, he is so he just total villain, not just yep. a pain. Yeah. Um, and then there's a multi-part storyline where Spidey is trying to stop the Green Goblin from taking over the city's crime syndicates, which strings along the mystery of who is the Green Goblin. Oh, we're going to find out in just a few weeks, true believers. But yeah, uh, and then there's a lot of like really cool personal drama outside of, you know, the um, superhero, supervillain punch em ups. Uh, Peter Parker graduates from high school. He begins his freshman year at Empire State University, where he's still considered to be an antisocial <laughs> outcast. Um, but we do get to meet a couple of new supporting characters, uh, namely Harry Osborn and Gwen Stacy. Um, and then uh, Peter's love life is also drastically simplified because he goes from having one to not having one. <laughs> uh, Ned Leeds, uh, a reporter at the Daily Bugle, uh, proposes to Betty Brant, who takes her sweet time responding to him, and then she totally vanishes. Liz Allen uh, wants nothing to do with Peter Parker after high school graduation, which is the first time she makes it clear that she actually was legitimately sweet on him. And, you know, kind of the only uh, bright spot uh, is that Aunt May and her friend Anna Watson keep trying to hook him up with Anna's niece, Mary Jane, uh, but she and Peter just keep missing each other, and we still have not seen Mary Jane 
our face was covered by like a yeah. house plant or something. I, right. <laughs> we saw her sitting on a couch, but we, you know, like we, we never saw her face or hair. So she's still a mystery. Um, yep. And with the punch em ups, Spidey has a few run-ins with the scorpion, the molten man and Craven, the best, best pants. pants in the business. <laughs> <laughs> but the real supervillain conflict in this season was the three issue arc where Spidey faces off against the master planner, uh, uh, who's actually Dr. Octopus, which sounds way cooler as a villain name. Um, and he's stealing atomic technology from all over town. That includes a radioactive isotope that Peter Parker and Dr. Kurt Connors need to save Aunt May's life from accidental radioactive blood poisoning from her nephew. Yeah. Um, Spidey runs a brutal gauntlet to bring down Doc Ock and save Aunt May, which includes a legendary five-page sequence of Spidey versus a big heavy thing. This <laughs> That is some of Ditko's best storytelling of his career. It's just Spidey trying to get out from under some big machinery stuff. Yeah, and it's the pacing of it is incredible. It's so experimental um, for a superhero comic uh, of the time. And it's like legitimately inspiring when he finally does it. And then he just, uh, just runs that crazy gauntlet uh, of just obstacle after obstacle and doesn't let any of it stop him. Um, it really just gets to the heart of that character. Uh, it's incredible. It's really well done. Unfortunately, it also feels like that was Ditko's last great Spider-Man story. Um, after that, he, treats us to uh, the debut of a new not-so-supervillain uh, <laughs> called The Looter, uh, who's basically an Ayn Rand morality tale brought to life on the comics page. Yep. And, you know, the reason for that uh, is that Stanley and Steve Ditko were not on speaking terms um, by the start of 1965. They hadn't been in a while. Ditko was doing all of the plotting for his stories. Uh, he'd bring his penciled pages to Saul Brodsky, the production manager, who wound up being the go-between for Ditko and Lee. By the end of our season, Ditko had actually already finished the last Marvel work he'd do um, uh, for many, many years. Um, but his departure had not yet been announced. Yeah. Um, we were fortunate enough to talk with David Curry, uh, author of the upcoming Ditko Shrugged, The Uncompromising Life of the Artist Behind Spider-Man, a few weeks ago he shed some light on how things had deteriorated between Ditko and Lee, as well as Ditko's unique perspective on life in general and <laughs> comics in particular. Yes. Unique and, is a word. <laughs> and we will be including that conversation with him in an upcoming episode. So stay tuned, true believer. So uh, I kind of want to jump over to uh, talk about Daredevil now and uh, a couple of the artists who were involved with that, because it does have like some, What's going on in Spider-Man behind the scenes is impacting what's going on in Daredevil behind the scenes. You know, Fantastic Four and Amazing Spider-Man were basically reinventing comics every month. And Daredevil was not. Uh, <laughs> you know, Wally Wood, who who's a brilliant artist, um, one of my favorite, uh, especially Golden Age artists, um, he brought some real energy and consistency to the book when he first started working on it. He even managed to make the first appearance of Stiltman seem pretty <laughs> compelling. Um, but Wally Wood hated working in the Marvel method. He felt like he was being taken advantage of by being asked to plot the stories he drew and only getting paid for the art. Um, and it's yeah. you know hard to argue that he wasn't being taken advantage of. So Stan agreed to let him write and draw 
<laughs> Daredevil number 10, but he set him up with a little twist of the knife quote at the beginning. Wally Wood has always wanted to try his hand at writing a story as well as drawing it, and big-hearted Stan, who wanted a rest anyway, said, okay. So what follows next is anybody's guess. You may like it or not, but you can be sure of this. It's going to be different. <laughs> Thanks, Stan. Uh, yeah. What followed was a ridiculously convoluted story that we covered with our guest Dave Russ in our October 1965 episode. Yeah, and so... Wood, I don't believe, saw Stan's intro until it was all done. Uh, and he was so pissed at Stan that he quit Daredevil and Marvel after issue number 11. Um, and Bob Powell wound up penciling that issue. Wood only inked it. Um, and Stan went back to writing it after this you know, <laughs> one-issue experiment with Wally Wood as the writer. Wood went on to go to Tower Comics. He was working there when he read Stan's parting shot in Daredevil's uh, letters page uh, for that issue. This is what Stan wrote in the letters page of Daredevil number 10 to set up the fact that he was coming back to write Daredevil number 11. Wonderful Wally decided he doesn't have time to write the conclusion next ish, and he's forgotten most of the answers we'll be needing. So sorrowful Stan has inherited the job of tying the whole yarn together and finding a way to make it all come out in the wash. And you think you've got troubles. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. I should have. I read a Stan quote. Should have let you do the Stan voice. Oh, do I know. I, I didn't. Voice. I didn't bust out the Stan voice. I can't do it on demand. No, uh, it, it just, I just have to like yeah. yeah fall back into it. So, so all of this though led to John Romita taking over for on Daredevil, and yeah. John Romita had worked for Stan Lee back in the Atlas days. We saw a lot of his Captain America art in the 1950s revival of the character, which we talked about with our pal Joe Keating in season three bonus episode. Yep. Uh, that's great. That's like Cap goes to hell. There's crazy stuff in that. Um, <laughs> when the comics industry had one of its periodic implosions in 1957, Romita was one of Marvel's many artists who was suddenly let go. And it took him a long time to get over that. There's yeah. a lot of this, you know, with you hear the artists have some problem with whichever of the two companies that they begrudgingly go back when the other one flames out. That's yeah. like the deal. Well, I, I used to write video game strategy guides. And for most of the time I did it, there were two publishers and uh, you would see a lot of writers burn their bridges at one place and then wind up getting hired on at the other doing essentially the exact same work for a few years and then there'd be a falling out and they'd come back to the first one with their hat in hand. And so I know this life. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so Ramita after, um, after Marvel dumped him very unceremoniously in 57, um, he did wind up finding some work at DC comics, um, where they stuck him on romance titles. They just buried him. <laughs> Stan had a quote, uh, that I read, uh, in, um, in one of the books, uh, that, DC had buried so much talent in romance comics and they had no idea that, you know, what they had down there. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, once Stan was in a position to be able to hire Ramita back, um, he really had to work on Ramita for a long time because uh, uh, Ramita was not going to let Stan sweet talk him into coming back to work for Marvel after the way things had gone in 57. I mean, first of all, their page rates were lower. Second, they were at the mercy of DC's distribution, so it was a very unstable environment. Um, and third, probably most importantly, he just didn't believe that the company had come back strongly enough to make it a smart business decision for him. Yeah. 
So Romita was burned out by 1965, about to quit comics altogether and go to work for an ad agency. Gross. Yeah, um, I know. Ugh. Stan convinced him to give Marvel another shot. Romita agreed to come back solely as an inker. He didn't even want to draw. But when the things went south with Wally Wood, Stan persuaded Romita to become the regular artist for Daredevil. And that is a very good thing that he did because Stan's relationship with the artist of another red spandex clad acrobatic hero was also deteriorating. Ditko. Yeah. Um, so it's impossible not to read Ramita's assignment on Daredevil as a way to get him up to speed to take over on Amazing Spider-Man. It was becoming clear that Ditko was not happy and probably not interested in sticking around much longer. Oh, man. So much palace intrigue. I know. <laughs> yeah. And if anyone came into this thinking we were going to just do a play-by-play of every single comic, we've mentioned some, but we're really getting into the people who make them, obviously. Yeah. Um, but uh, let's go ahead and take a break. And then when we come back, I promise we'll talk about some comic books. <laughs> but then we're also going to talk about more Palace Intrigue. It'll be great. Sweet. All right. We'll be right back here on Marvel by the Month. Right, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. We're doing our season three recap episode, and we're going to talk about the Avengers um, and what they were up to in uh, 1965 and early 66. So personally, I had some real high hopes for Avengers coming into this season. Um, we had just ended the previous season with uh, the famous Old Order Changeth story, um, and that was the one where Iron Man, Giant Man, Wasp, and Thor had left the team. Um, Captain America was left to try and mold three former villains, Hawkeye, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver, into the new Avengers. Something that was kind of interesting that I learned is that Stan's primary motivation for the changing of the guard, uh, it wasn't because he had this flash of inspiration it's like, oh, let's take some ex supervillains and turn them into the heroes and and shake things up. It was because it was getting nearly impossible for him to write almost every page of every Marvel comic and ensure that nothing in the heroes' solo titles was conflicting with what was going on in Avengers. So he's like, everyone who has a solo book, you're out of the Avengers. <laughs> and that was it. That was the whole inspiration. Uh, I love, I love that. <laughs> I also love that. One of the reasons why we had such high hopes was because Giant Man was gone. It's just like an ironic twist that the loss of Henry Pym uh, gave us high hopes. Yeah, yeah. Usually that would be addition by subtraction, but yeah. it was not the case. <laughs> uh, so unfortunately, most Avenger stories in this season were just kind of duds. Um, yeah. We focused on one storyline in detail. That was Avengers number 23 and 24 which featured the return of Kang and the first appearance of his tragic lady love, Ravana or Ravona. That depending on how Ravona. you want. <laughs> Ravona. Uh, <laughs> and shout out to our pal, Jamie Wenger for helping us to make sense of that. And five other stories in our fir- very first giant size Marvel by the month. It was a ton of comics. We went yes. Through. Yeah. He, he did a yeoman's work. I think he read like two dozen issues for us for that episode. So thank you, Jamie. Yeah, and the Avengers did meet Doctor Doom for the first time in Avengers number 25, which felt like it should have been a much bigger deal and wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah, outside of those, I mean, there wasn't really that much to get excited about. Um, 
We did meet the swordsman, who is uh, Hawkeye's dirtbag carny friend, who <laughs> bluffed his way into the Avengers with the help of the Mandarin. We also saw the first appearance of the world's most generic villain, Power Man, who was created using the same technology that gave us the world's most generic hero, Wonder Man. Um, also, another terrible costume. It was like brown and orange. Oh, yeah. That's hideous. Yeah. Just, yeah. Looked like a, a muscular turd. Um, and the Avengers ended season three with a whimper, not a bang, with a meandering two-part adventure against Atuma. So... Not a ton to write home about this time for the Avengers. I hate to throw Don Hell under the bus, yeah. but he was he has already had to work under the pen name Don Heck because of the comics code. Mm-hmm. But when you look at that stuff that's going on in Fantastic Four and Amazing Spider-Man and Thor and even X-Men and you compare it to Avengers, it's clear that one of these things is not like the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we've talked about how heavily Stan was leaning on his artists for the plot and storytelling. And, you know, unfortunately, like, I'm I'm just left to conclude that Heck just wasn't on quite the same level as some of the other more veteran artists uh, at this point. Like, um, they can't all be winners. Uh, Don Heck certainly did some really good stuff in his career. This is just not a particularly good period of productivity for him. Yeah, he. I mean, he brought Iron Man in with a great story and great art. Um, totally. But uh, yeah, this is, I mean, we have Jay Gavin, who's Werner Roth doing X-Men. We'll talk about it soon. Uh, but it's the comparison between the two is crazy for art. It's uh, we've seen so many great artists from the golden age coming into Marvel and and making Avengers look shabby. Yeah. But uh, there was some good stuff in Thor um, in, in the pages of Journey into Mystery. Once uh, Thor was freed up from the Avengers continuity, Jack and Stan set him on some bigger and bolder adventures. Uh, most importantly, they got him far from lame Dr. Blake's New York office. There was very little lame Dr. Blake uh, yeah. in the season of Thor. That always felt like a like just a bad sitcom, like, a, yeah. you know, like Dick Van Dyke. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like lame Dr. Blake is Dick Van Dyke who goes into the closet and then makes an excuse why Thor is in the closet. Uh, you know, it's just crazy. But yeah, he starts off in Vietnam where he's trying to recover some magical Norn stones that Loki used to cheat his way to victory in the trial of the gods. That's where we ended last uh, season two. Uh, then he faces the literally indestructible destroyer for the first time which is imbued with the power of Odin to be an unstoppable wrecking machine. Pretty cool villain. Yeah, I just rewatched uh, the first Thor movie with my seven-year-old son last week or the week before. And, you know, when the Destroyer shows up at the end of that, it's such a cool design. Yeah, they have him pop out in the beginning. I was just rewatching that myself. Uh, And it's just, and it is Kirby's design. Like it's shoulder pad for shoulder pad and weird head the same destroyer yeah um and then uh thor gets to meet his olympian counterpart hercules for the first time uh first in journey into mystery annual number one and then he confronts him again in a knockdown drag out fight uh later on in the season (laughs) that sean baby provided some amazing play-by-play commentary for i didn't even want to cover that issue and he's like no we're doing it and then he made it worth our while yeah it's so funny oh it is and it's a great epic like you know, building, dropping on people and crushing them, you know, 18 wheeler, just power fight. Yep. And mostly over Jane Foster. Yep. Um, 
the I'll, I'll say it the <laughs> absorbing man uh absorbing uh is not a word i say well everyone so get used to it also he uh so the absorbing man returned for an epic three issue clash of titans that saw him and loki almost conquer asgard mm-hmm. came pretty close and then there was a pretty racist storyline with a tribal chieftain in asia who discovered a missing norn stone and christened himself the demon which we didn't go anywhere near because nope. yeah nope I, nope. y- yeah <laughs> you know it's like we can just tell you it's a racist storyline that does not age well we don't need to spend any more time on it than that if you really want to do this to yourself and look it up it's on marvel unlimited but we are not going to spend our time or yours yeah it do- it doesn't have it's not that great of a story anyway so it's yeah. not like there's some you know risque thing to find out about it's just 60s white people racism in a comic book yep uh yep pretty much um but uh this is also the season where journey into mystery was officially renamed thor um and that was kind of inevitable like the word thor kept getting bigger and bigger on the cover and journey into mystery kept getting smaller and smaller so you kind of saw which way this is going but you know if there was any question this is officially thor's book exclusively from this point on yeah, I sometimes I want to make a little gif of just the just the title, watching yeah. the title get bigger, uh, <laughs> until Thor becomes. The, and what's great is it keeps the numbering. That's the biz, most bizarre thing. It just becomes Thor, but it's like issue one twenty six. So there you go, just born into the world. <laughs> well, we should jump over to X Men. There a lot yes. of stuff happened there. This season saw some of the best issues of X Men's initial run. And some of the worst. It was a uh, real mixed bag. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Uh, the first couple of issues that we covered in season three featured the debut of the Juggernaut and the first glimpse of Charles Xavier's life before the X-Men. Not to mention the first time we learned that his first name was Charles. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, she's just Professor Xavier all the time. Uh, then X-Men switched to a monthly publishing schedule with the introduction of Bolivar Trask Sentinels, which were a little goofy looking like kind of Oompa Loompa giants, but pretty much nailed the fundamental aspect of them from the jump and all of the mutant hating, you know, stuff that happens in the X-Men. Yep. Uh, and, you know, like ignoring all attempts for humans to control them. And yeah. Yeah. Also the instant AI takes over itself kind of thing. It's <laughs> great. Yep. Uh, and then we got the return of Magneto. Uh, which apparently coincided with Stanley forgetting everything he ever knew about how magnetism works. Um, we're not even going to bother trying to describe how insane and dumb the storyline was, but it definitely, definitely qualifies as a good, bad storyline. Oh yeah. Like mystery science theater quality. Um, and I know this recap episode is supposed to keep you from having to go back and listen to the individual season three episodes, but seriously treat yourself to listening to Sean baby, trying to explain this thing in the January 66 <laughs> episode. It is just magic. It is audio gold. Yeah. We, uh, we are just full of laughter because it is madness. So listen to it. Yeah. You don't have to listen to everything. Just that. Oh yeah. But seriously, listen to that whole episode. It's great. Let's take our final break of the episode, uh, and then when we come back, we will uh, just kind of mop up the rest of what was going on in season three of Marvel by the Month. Okay, welcome back to Marvel by the Month, our season three recap episode. 
Let's talk a little bit about both Sergeant Fury and Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Same guy. Whoa. Uh, I know, right? Uh, so we don't usually, I, I don't know if we have ever really um, gone into detail on an issue of Sergeant Fury. Um, there, It's being published every month by Marvel at this point, but it's just, it's not superhero-y. The, it, it's set 20 years before the rest of the Marvel Universe. Um, but they are part of the main Marvel continuity, um, and there were a few notable events in this season. Um, we got to see the Howling Commandos face off against Baron Strucker and his Blitz Squad, um, and Strucker uh, will be making uh, a return um, in the 1960s Marvel Universe. We also saw Sergeant Fury match wits against uh, the Red Skull, um, who had infiltrated the army base where they were stationed. And Red Skull also will be showing up again in the 60s Marvel Universe. Um, we also learned why Nick Fury has an eye patch in the 60s when he becomes Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. And uh, Rob, why don't you tell us a little bit about Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Well, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., I feel like we're getting paid to say that whole thing, <laughs> is uh, where the character really becomes part of the Marvel age of comics. So S.H.I.E.L.D. is a super a spy organization writing the current trend of the man from Uncle James Bond get smart, etc. Yep. Uh it's the non-superpowered part of the Marvel universe. Colonel Nick Fury as is the director of Shield. Uh I can't even remember what Shield stands for in this one. Uh, Supreme know? Headquarters International Espionage Law Enforcement Division. So, I believe it. I believe anytime somebody makes an acronym for Shield up. Um, I I'm I might <laughs> be mixing up the old one and the new one. Yeah. Um, um, but dumb, but, but we get all the, we get a, a few of the commandos, dumb, dumb, uh, Dugan and Gabe Jones followed him from the howling commandos. Mm-hmm. And we have Tony Stark who makes all of shields, high tech gadgetry gadgetry, but he never ever suits up as Iron Man. So we just yeah. see Tony Stark a couple of times. I find that to be like, like really impressive restraint, honestly, because it would have been really easy for them to just have him do that. But they really committed to it's like nope this is super spy stuff this is not superhero stuff i know it's it's obviously in the universe tony stark is there and uh but they don't yeah it's it's they really stay away from a ton of superhero stuff yeah so early on in our season um nick fury agent of shield replaced the human torch as the lead story in strange tales which i was not crying about thank goodness um yeah uh and Pairing Nick Fury with Doctor Strange uh, in Strange Tales meant that it featured some of the craziest visuals in Marvel Comics at the time. Um, you had Jack Kirby and John Severin illustrating some absolutely bonkers stories about S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA just attempting to one-up each other in the spy game with like these Rube Goldbergian like, like It's like plots. gadgetry, but then whole buildings and streets and, you know, traps that are yeah a, a building that is... You know, each room is a different kind of trap. Those kinds yeah, of and you know the sudden reveal of a flying aircraft carrier. You know, yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, Severin was yeah when he debuted, it was it was awesome. I lost my yes. mind for a little while. Yeah, it was so good. Um, and then I don't think we really talked about this uh, in in maybe any detail, but um, in this season of Marvel by the Month. Um, uh, uh, the in the the uh, shield stories, we did see the debuts of Mentallo and the Fixer, who were kind of some low rent supervillain types. Uh, one's uh, Mentallo's a psychic supervillain, and Fixer's a technical genius. Um, they set their sights on destroying Shield, but they would show up again in 
like mess with the Avengers. Um, you know, not not a listers by any stretch of the imagination. And you know, and I don't think Fixer even has any like actual powers. So they still kept it pretty pretty low key. And Mentala's tie into it was that um, he was taking on Shields. Uh, uh, psi division like their psionics um Mm -hmm. so we saw that you know shield kind of has these like psychic uh soldiers as well um so it's keeping it within the bounds of the super spy thing and not getting too heavily into the superhero stuff yeah i love how they did pull in this science fiction sort of philip k dick element of yes yeah yeah it's very minority report to have the psi ops division Um, very much yeah yeah uh, and Ditko continued blowing minds with his Doctor Strange stories and strange tales, even if often they were just Baron Mordo again. Um, yeah. So because most of this season saw Strange on the run from Baron Mordo, yep. whose power had been drastically increased by Dormammu, the Lord of the Dark Dimension. I feel like <laughs> I have to say it like that. Um, this featured the debut of Eternity. One of the cornerstones of Marvel's Marvel's cosmic pantheon, which um, blew my mind and I went into a great detail as a kid when I first saw that. Um, And then Strange winds up defeating Dormammu, which forces Dormammu to give his word not to invade Earth's dimension. And he actually sticks to it. Yeah. So pretty he's, good. He's a flaming headed sorcerer of his word. Yeah. And again, it, the one of the summaries for uh, our reports on Dr. Strange is Ditko's work on Dr. Strange is mind blowing and worth looking at, which I did not expect when we started this mission back in 1961. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's great. No matter what the story is doing, it's just yeah. awesome to look at. They're, they're all great. Um, if you have Marvel Unlimited, all of his uh, Doctor Strange stuff is on there. If you want a fancier version, uh, Marvel has published uh, an archive edition called Ditko is Strange. And it's really beautiful, you know, full color reproduction and nice paper and all that. So, yeah, uh, but treat yourself seriously. You will not be disappointed. Well, uh, jumping over to uh, another one of Marvel's uh, split story books, um, Tales to Astonish. The season started with uh, Giant Man and Wasp losing the main story slot to Namor the Submariner. Um, And this was great uh, (laughs) because not only did this mean we didn't have to read Henry Pym stories any longer, we also got to see Gene Colan debut in the Marvel Age of Comics as Adam Austin. And the first uh, Submariner story was this epic seven-part quest for Namor to recover Neptune's trident and establish himself once and for all as the monarch of Atlantis. So some cool adventuring and and some world building um felt like a a great video game plot yeah 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 um then there was some nonsense with the puppet master that we're not even going to get into (laughs) because i seriously i do not even want to talk anymore about the puppet master until he stops looking like uncle fester and goes back to looking like billy corgan yeah i never thought i wanted him to go back to the weird eyebrow stuff but it's it's creepier when he's uncle fester yeah uh, then the Hulk continued to hold down the backup slot in Tales to Astonish. For a while, we got Kirby penciling the stories, which was great. Um, the Hulk fought a series of battles against the leader and wound up having Banner's mind for a while. So we had smartish Hulk. As um, Kirby had less and less time to focus on the Hulk, he started doing layouts for Mike Esposito, Bob Powell, and John Romita to work off of. And in one issue, the art was credited to Scott Edward, which was Gil Kane's first 1960s Marvel appearance. A lot of people sort of 
peeked into this as Ditko dropped off. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then at the very end of our third season, um, Bill Everett returned to pencil the Hulk over Kirby's layouts. Um, and so I, I think we were very happy to see Bill Everett return. We really like his art. Um, but uh, I <laughs> did a little digging. Um, I, I read a, a great biography of him that I mentioned at the top of the episode. Um, it turns out this is not a particularly happy time in Everett's life. Um, so you remember how we have talked about earlier uh, how Daredevil was supposed to come out much sooner than it did, but it got held up by production delays? And, and then Stan wound up having to put uh, Avengers together instead to take its spot in the publishing schedule. Well, turns out production delays was a euphemism for acute alcoholism. Mm. So uh, Everett was also at the time uh, moonlighting uh, during his day job as an art supervisor of a paper company, uh, but his struggles with alcohol were really uh, the core issue. Daredevil one wound up being so far behind schedule that any profits it could have made were eaten up by the penalties that Marvel had to pay to the printer mm. for delaying and delaying. Um, and then finally, like Stan... He reached the he reached his limit. He just told Everett to send him what he had, um, and then Steve Ditko and Saul Brodsky wound up having to finish the inking uh, on Daredevil without being credited. Damn. So, yeah, and Everett yeah. had worked for Timely and Atlas Comics in the '40s and '50s. Uh, he was the creator of the Submariner, but prior to the Marvel Age of Comics, his drinking had made him so unreliable that although Stan gave him a nearly infinite number of chances, he eventually had to stop giving him work. Yeah. And during this time, Everett had a really hard time staying in one place, and he had a harder time holding down a job. In 1965, he sent a wire to Stan Lee. Um, he was inquiring about coming back to work for him. Stan was not in a position to turn down experienced artists uh, who wanted to work for what he could afford to pay them, so he brought Everett back in. Um, but And this, I think, is really pretty sad. Like In, in a sign of how far Everett's stock had, dr- had slipped with Stan Lee, um, he wound up being assigned to draw The Hulk, which is the backup feature in Tales to Astonish behind the character that Everett had created, the Submariner. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'd like to say this was the end of Everett's hard times, but he continued to struggle with his alcoholism for several more years. Um, I am happy to say that he did finally conquer it by 1970. Um, He became very heavily involved with Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, He didn't live very long after that. Um, He'd done a lot of damage to his body over the years. Um, but his remaining years were sober ones, and he helped an awful lot of people struggle through their own addictions. So um, sort of a, a bittersweet ending. Yeah, at least some silver lining. I did not know the the very end. Yeah. Just, so I knew about his work, and I knew there was something about alcoholism, but I didn't know that he did overcome it. So that's great. That You always like to hear that end to the story. Yeah. Well, uh Over in Tales of Suspense, last but not least, uh, we have a split book featuring Iron Man, uh, an Iron Man story as the lead and a Captain America story as the backup. Um, The Captain America stories were the stronger stories in the book. I think that's Uh, fair to say. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) The first half dozen or so that we read in the season were set in World War II. Um, that, that was mostly done for continuity reasons since Cap was still in the Avengers. So the one remaining, you know, hero in the Avengers who who was in a solo title stands like, we'll just talk about what he did before. And yeah, the first one uh, that was set in the 1960s featured three of the Red Skull's sleeper robots reawakening and combining to form a doomsday device that would have destroyed the world if Cap hadn't been on the case. That mm-hmm. was a pretty cool 
weird story, you know, robots waking up in the 60s. So this is when this is what brought us from the 40s to the 60s is uh, this sleeper robot plan from the Red Skull. And then we went from uh, the sleepers uh, straight into a two part shield story um, featuring Cap. Um, where Cap fought uh, Batroc the Leaper for the first time and punched him in the dick. <laughs> <laughs> Again, part of the Sean Baby episode. Uh, yep. It's worth listening to. It's worth listening to. Uh, we were also introduced to the woman uh, we would eventually know as S.H.I.E.L.D. Agent 13, um, Sharon Carter, as well as mysterious science villains who were known as Them uh, and would later become known as AIM. And then our last Cap story of the season was another World War II flashback where we saw the unrequited love of his life, Peggy Carter. It's really, really solid stuff. Kirby illustrates most of it, um, and then John Rubina comes in and, and fills in as needed. So um, just visually, and even from a storytelling perspective, just the really solid little 10 to 12-page stories. Um, yeah. Pretty much every single issue. Which is weird because it's the back of the title which was yeah. led by iron man which was okay don hell uh comics code don heck was the penciler and he was fine he's fine <laughs> there, yeah there were a few real stinkers early on in the season and then we got the first appearance of the titanium man another armored commie in the tradition of the crimson dynamo who iron man fought and defeated in a propaganda victory that almost cost happy hogan his life so that was that was pretty epic but happy didn't die but an experimental procedure transformed him into a super strong brute called the freak which iron man had to bring down without hurting his friend uh which was just that got convoluted so we had this sort of pretty solid epic piece with the the titanium man and then uh and then the freak thing was just weird uh and then the season wrapped up with another iron man versus mandarin feud in which the mandarin revealed his newest weapon which is cool a giant killer robot named ultimo yeah iron man still hadn't beaten him at the end of season three so who knows how this is going to go I don't know. I guess you're just going to have to listen to every episode we put out from now on to figure out if Iron Man survives. I predict he loses and becomes uh, just lost to history. Yep, that's plausible. No one's ever said Iron Man again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So somewhere in all of these uh, Iron Man stories, um, we also did get a one-off Iron Man story where he fights the Black Knight. Um, It's not a totally remarkable story. but it was scripted by a fresh young talent by the name of Roy Thomas. Um, he'd also written a Doctor Strange story and a Sergeant Fury story uh, in the stuff we read this season. Again, I don't think we even commented on it directly um, that he had written these, but he was starting to his name was starting to appear in some books. Mm-hmm. Um, when the Marvel Age of Comics started, you know, after Fantastic Four number one, basically, like we said, Stan Lee was writing almost everything. Like the notable exceptions were the stories he handed off to his brother, Larry Lieber, for the first couple of years. But by the end of 1965, uh, Marvel was publishing 10 monthly superhero books, four of which had multiple stories in them, plus annuals. Um, And so Stan had been trying for a couple of years to find an editorial assistant who could also help with the scripting chores. Um... And he finally found his man in Roy Thomas. And let me tell you the secret origin of Roy Thomas, because this is a pretty good story. So uh, at 24 years old, uh, Roy Thomas had been editing a comics fanzine called Alter Ego for a few years. He got a job working for DC Comics editor Mort Weisinger, 
who honestly was just an infamous prick to just about everyone who worked for him. He edited the Superman line of comics at DC, um, and he just ran it uh, with an iron fist. Um, He made uh, Jerry Siegel, the co-creator of Superman, he made his life a living hell. Eight days into the job, Roy Thomas realized he was in for the same treatment. Uh, The first thing that happened um, when... Roy uh, came to the DC offices was that uh, Weisinger uh, started by cutting Thomas's salary by 10% and then telling him he didn't actually have the job, but there would be a two week trial period. Weisinger's uh, previous assistant who he had fired was kept around to train Thomas as a not too subtle indication of what was going to happen if he stepped out of line. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Just a real piece of work. Yeah. Um, so Roy Thomas would spend his days being berated by Mort Weisinger and then he'd head back to the hotel where he was staying and he'd just cry his eyes out. Um, this is a kid who had grown up loving comics. He'd planned on making a career out of them. And Weisinger had just about beaten that out of him in two weeks. Fortunately, um, upon arriving in New York, Roy Thomas had sent Stanley a letter just to see if they could meet in person. It was basically a fan letter. He's like, hey, I'm coming to New York. I'd love it if we could meet. Fast forward two weeks later, Thomas had passed a writing test with flying colors. He was sitting in Stan's office with an offer to jump ship to Marvel. <laughs> um, he returned to Weisinger's office and he gave his notice. Uh, Weisinger threw him out of the building, accusing him of being a spy for Marvel. And the rest is history. Um, we're going to be reading a lot more of Roy Thomas's work in season four, and we hope that you will join us for it. Yeah, uh, we have talked a few, uh, done a few stories that Roy Thomas had influenced as we covered our um, fill-in episodes with the What If line, which Roy Thomas is editing and I think created. Like he, yes. it was his baby. Yep. So when we do, uh, if you if you do have time and want to listen to some other episodes, there's some fill in episodes that cover um, several what if issues that are early ones, uh, both for Spider-Man and Fantastic Four stories. Yeah. Roy Thomas is great. He he winds up becoming such a cornerstone of everything that Marvel would do mm-hmm. um, going forward. And I'm happy to say is still around and in reasonably good health as far as I know. So great. Um, let's hope that lasts forever. But that is our season three recap. Uh, I think this is the most books we have read for any season to date. I mean, there are fewer episodes in this season, I think. But yeah, the quantity of stuff to read is just going up and up and up. Yes, it's getting it's it's getting very hard for me to read anything else. Which is, <laughs> I have that stack of I have two stacks of books, and I finally, you know, as I've mentioned, got through Jerusalem by Alan Moore, and uh, yes, and that had held me up for a while, just sort of rereading parts. But um, now I'm finally getting into some of those books, but running out of time <laughs> because I'm reading so many comics. Yeah. Uh, I can't even keep up with the current comics too that are in, which I normally had done as when we started this all through season one and two. Well, cheer up, Rob. I mean, in 15 years, when we catch up to where comics are right now, <laughs> you'll be able to read all those. So you, I don't know what you're complaining about. Oh yeah, I'm going to get to them eventually. They're basically <laughs> in my book stack. <laughs> Oh, man. So, uh, yeah, so that's season three of Marvel by the Month. I'm so excited for season four. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Um, If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Um, We have some really cool stuff planned for season four. We've got some great returning guests. We've got uh, we have confirmed some new guests that I'm very excited to introduce to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to have some good shows coming up. And uh, 
in between now and then or whenever, you can always uh, drop us a line at marvelbythemonth at gmail.com. We uh, might wind up reading part of your letter on the air if you let us. Uh, You can also just uh, email us a voice memo and we'll drop it right into the episode. You can find us on the social media uh, at Marvel by the Month on Instagram, at MarvelBTM on Twitter, and Facebook is Facebook.com slash Marvel by the Month. And uh, you don't have to remember all that stuff. Just go to MarvelByTheMonth.com. Uh, <laughs> it's all right there. And, you know, we have reliably uh, almost every Wednesday for uh, more than a year posted an episode. So yeah. I think you can count on us. I've never, you know... I mean, I'm going to frame it just that way. I think you can count on us Wednesday. Good episodes, good comics, good guests all coming up. All of this awaits you and more. So on that note, uh, let's just close things out here. I'm just going to say thank you for listening. And my name is Brian Stratton. Mine is Rob Mill. And we will see you next week for next month. 